This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. This episode of iFreaks is brought to you in part by Postcards. Postcards is the simplest way to allow user feedback from right inside your application. With just a simple gesture, anyone testing your app can send you a postcard containing a screenshot of the app and some notes. It's a great way to handle bug reports and feature requests from your client. It takes five minutes to set up, and the first five postcards each month are free. Get started today by visiting www.postcard.es. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 92 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we have Alondo Brewington. Hello from North Carolina. James Zuber. You know, I think I'm secure enough in my adulthood to wear a Care Bear Band-Aid. Nice. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, uh, Natasha. I should have asked you how to say your last name. You can just call me Natasha the Robot. Awesome. Is there? <laughs> uh, do you want to introduce yourself really quickly? Sure. So uh, I'm an iOS developer. I currently work at Capital One, uh, and then I usually just learn a lot, and I write about what I'm learning on my blog, Natasha the Robot. Uh, recently, since Swift came out. I've been really focusing on it, so lots of Swift stuff. I have a Swift newsletter. Yes, that's pretty much it. Currently learning WatchCode as well, a little bit. So, Natasha, are you actually doing uh, Swift projects in uh, at Capital One, or is this something you're just exploring as a just as a way to to, to get up to speed? Yeah, we switched to Swift pretty fast, pretty much like as soon as it came out. Uh, so, I've been working on it uh, pretty much like full time and on the side. <laughs> since it came out. Yeah, I really liked the blog. So I started doing Swift development full-time about two months ago, and about half the questions I ended up going to Google for ended up on your blog. So thank you for that. So, (laughs) Yeah, usually if I Google something and it doesn't exist, I try to write a blog post. Yeah, Natasha the Robot knows everything. (laughs) Now, was that a different approach than to your blog than prior to Swift, or is this something you've, you've always done since you've had the blog? Yeah, so it's something I've always done. So there's stuff um, about like Ruby on Rails development from like two years ago. Yay, Rails! <laughs> <laughs> but it's just a way for me to solidify my knowledge. So I often feel if I like learn really fast, then I feel like, you know, I kind of lose it really quick. Most of it is actually a reference for myself. So, <laughs> you know, that feeling when you like solve something and you're good. But then like a few months later, or even a few weeks later, you have the same problem and you're like, I used to know how to do this. So a lot of times I just Google my own blog. Like, nice. uh, <laughs> for Swift, like unwrapping multiple optionals, I Googled that one all the time. <laughs> yeah, I have to admit that I've used the same tactic where, you know, I run into an error or something. And so I'll throw a quick blog post up there. And then, yeah, I Google my own website because I know the answer's there. Yep. <laughs> So you have a post on here. I have to admit, I'm, I, I love the idea of testing code. 
And this is one area that, as I've been learning Swift, I've just been kind of ignoring, mostly because the tutorials that I've worked through don't really address it. So, uh, and, and that's unit testing, or just testing in general with Swift. So, you have unit testing, a quick look at quick, and I'm wondering, how did you find that, and how did you get started with it? So, I've actually learned about it through people at like Pivotal Labs. Uh, so one of the, I think the main contributors is someone from Pivotal and the person from Facebook. Uh, so I heard about it and I was just starting like a brand new project uh, in Swift. I wanted to have better kind of frameworks for testing. Uh, so Quick was kind of like the only obvious choice. Uh, it's a lot more like RSpec, which I like. So we just kind of went with it. So Quick is a framework for testing? Yeah. So I don't know if you're familiar with like Ruby on Rails RSpec, kind of BDD style testing, where it's more readable than XC tests. But you basically say like you have a context, describe statement, and then it, like the different asserts are like it statements. Yeah, I really like the style. JavaScript also has Jasmine, mm -hmm. which is kind of like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the other frameworks similar to it that other languages have, but those are kind of the ones that I think people are going to be most familiar with in the web spaces, RSpec and... Uh... There's Kiwi for iOS. Oh, yes. Yeah. Similar one. That was what I was trying to remember. So it's pretty similar to Kiwi. I've actually used Kiwi a little bit, but I haven't really taken a full dive into using unit testing um, yeah, nuts. Kiwi was a little bit awkward because <laughs> it used the block syntax with Objective-C. <laughs> so it was like kind of weird to write, but Quick is, in Swift is so much easier to work with. Okay, so Quick is Swift native or it just yeah. has better bindings? I think it's, uh, yeah, it's Swift. I know they have some Objective-C code like to compare different types or like classes, but I think mostly it's in Swift. Um, and it's made for Swift specifically, so it's like a lot more, it's created for like the trailing closure syntax, right? So it's a lot more Swifty. Oh, very cool. Maybe we should step back a little bit because even if we're talking about writing unit tests with just your basic XCT test, that's forward thinking in the iOS world. Not as much as it was a year or two ago, maybe, but can you explain BDD behavior driven development? Like what advantages it gives you over Simple unit tests? Yeah, so it just makes you keep the user in mind. So when you're writing code, you're thinking about, like, why am I writing this code? What is the purpose of it? Um, and then you end up, instead of just writing, like, a straight-up unit test, you end up thinking about how how to kind of architect. It helps you architect your code in a better way because you're thinking more about, like, what behaviors the user are going to take. Yeah, the way that I explain it to people is outside-in. So you start at the level, like Natasha said, where the user is actually hitting the application, and then you work your way down, where most testing frameworks uh, push you the other way, where you write tests around your data models or your entities that represent, you know, movement or other responsibilities in the system, and then you work your way back out. And so by working from the outside in, yeah, you have a user-centric focus instead of a code-centric focus. Okay, so like code-centric... So I create a view controller, you know, I do the setup in my class, I check properties on it. With BDD, I'm doing something a little more user-focused. The thing that was hard for me to wrap my brain around when I tried it, and I haven't done a whole lot with BDD and iOS, was how do you 
interpret the user type commands? Like what would be a typical user command that you would test if you're building a view controller? Uh, so just to clarify, I think quick is actually more on the unit testing level, but it's more readable. Uh, for iOS, uh, one of the frameworks I like for more kind of the integration tests, more user-centric is KIF. And with KIF, you basically say like user taps on the text box, enters this thing, they click save button, it should go to the next screen. So you can have kind of really high level tests with that. Now, in comparison to uh, Kiwi, uh, one of the things I liked about it when I was doing a bit of work with it was the ability to nest test. So around a particular scenario, is that available in quick as well? Yeah, definitely. So you have the describe statement where you can kind of say the method name, then you can have different contexts. So if you're testing your API, you're like, API was successful, API had an error, and then within the API had an error context, you can have its statements around what, like maybe every single error, right? If they're handled differently. Very nice. So you said unit tests. So is, are we talking view controllers then, or are we talking um, data access layers and API layers? I mean, you should test every, you know, as much as possible. So <laughs> everything. <laughs> yeah, there is a way to test view controllers, but Models are probably the easiest to test. And then, um, yeah, view controllers in iOS are kind of more difficult to test because you have to do some dependency injection. But if you have kind of clear models or view models and break out your code, it's a lot easier to test. That makes sense. What do you use for the, the mocking or dependency injection anyway? What do you inject in in order to avoid the issues that you're going to have by going full stack? Yeah, usually it's if you have a view controller, then you probably have to dependency inject like your API service model. So you can kind of fake what happens. Uh, so you can fake an error state or a success state. Now in Objective-C, I think the default for creating mocks and things like that would be OC mock. Is there anything coming down the pipe in Swift that's similar? Yeah, I'm sure there is. I haven't really used anything, so I haven't really needed like a full-on mocking network. Okay, so how do you create the data? Like if you want to create an error case from your API and test that your view controller is behaving correctly, what would you do? Yeah, so that would be more the dependency injection. So you would uh, make it public, your, whatever your API service layer, um, you can make it public and then you inject it you can like subclass it and inject it to be that one. And then you can fake the response in your tests. You have like a lot more control of it by subclassing it in your tests. Okay. So you take your API, you create a subclass, you override one of the methods and you mm -hmm. can. Yeah, exactly. Like you can verify that something happened method. to it. Yep. Okay. So. And then your tests, like are, your tests thing. are, like yeah, your tests are really easy. Cause you're just like, Oh, it was true. Like this was called. You know, you don't have to test that it actually went to the API or any complicated logic. And you don't want to test that in your view controller. You just want the quick, if this happened, you know, what what's the reaction? Okay, that's kind of the old school TDD thing, with, you know, from the old Java guys, what they were doing. And I didn't see a lot of it with Objective-C because it was so bulky to create a subclass. But I think with Swift, it's so easy to create a subclass and just do a method. Then it was something that... I see people doing a lot more. I don't see a lot of the mocking frameworks or much of a need for one. I haven't really 
used one. I do the same yeah. thing you talked about. I'll subclass it, mm-hmm. create a method, and just verify that it was called. Yeah, and then with Swift, it's a little bit more like functional programming, or kind of makes you do that more. Uh, so you can you end up writing code that's also kind of more independent. What so, What do you mean more independent? Just like yeah, I think this is not just functional programming, but just kind of like separation of concerns, or you inject dependencies into the method versus having some kind of global constant that you have to manipulate or that relies on it. So I try to make my methods kind of like self, like you you have an input, you have an output, like hopefully no side effects of like a global state type of stuff. Yeah, that's definitely one of the key features of writing testable code is having simple inputs and outputs, something that you can test. Yeah, exactly. Have If you have a method and you're incrementing some global counter, that's a nightmare to test. And it's just bad practice in general, but having to write a test for it actually really fleshes that type of poor design out pretty quickly. So let's talk a little bit more about quick spec. I'm just trying to understand how you create your tests because I'm used to you know, creating a the system under test directly. With quick spec, you have like context and you have describes. Can you go a little bit and tell us like what describe is? You've got the, the R spec. Yeah. So usually it's used just to have the name of the method. If it's a, Instance method, you put a period in front of it, and you know, it's in front of the method, but it's very, it makes it very easy to scan your code and be like, okay, I'm describing this method. And then you can go to your code and you know exactly what it corresponds to. And then for, if you're using XCTAS, like sometimes I would put like underscores to like separate them out. But then within each describe block, you have different contexts. And a context is again a more high level summary. So you have your high level function. So that maybe it could be like, you know, fetch my object, fetch user. So you would have describe dot fetch user. So now you know exactly that it corresponds to the fetch user method in your like whatever API service. And then your context would be, you know, the fetch was successful, the fetch was unsuccessful. And within each context, you would have its statements. And these are the assertions of what you actually expect. So when fetch is successful, if you're testing the view controller, you would say it goes to the next page. And then you would do that testing. If it, if the context is that there is an error, uh, you would say, you know, it shows an error. And then sometimes there could be within the context, you can actually have other contexts even. So it's pretty embeddable and nested, uh, but you can be very clear on like what errors, maybe if it's, if different errors are handled differently, you can have those different contexts within a context. Okay. So if I'm hearing you correctly, describe is your top level thing. So you do something like describe my view controller or maybe something in a little more clear English. Your context is <laughs> different things like, when my view happens and the network fails, mm-hmm. then below that we do the it where we actually do the assertions. And if we were using XE tests, we do XE assert, not nil or is true. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Okay. So we can nest different contexts within the describe and, and within other contexts. <laughs> okay. So we can have context within context. Yep. And ideally what shows out in the log is similar to a sentence. So it's readable, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. It reads like a sentence. 
No, and I, in some cases, you actually wind up where, you know, you're not just asserting, you know, the direct return value or whatever, but you're also asserting that the right side effects occurred. And so you can have multiple it's that, you know, one says, I got this return value, and the other one says, you know, the one side effect is the error is a good example of that. But, you know, it updated this other thing, you know, it, it went yeah, exactly. and updated core data or whatever. Yeah, pretty much anything in your code that's yeah, side effects or return statements, you want to have an it statement for it. Now, inside of your it statements, can you use like the XCT asserts or do you use this own kind of assertion framework? Yeah, so quick spec, um, they actually subclass from XCTest, so everything is available. But it's actually better to use their own assertions because they're just more readable. Uh, so their assertions are things like, you know, expect my result to be five. So it's like a lot more readable and it's more of a sentence than like assert nil or assert equal. Uh, you have the clear, like, this is what I expect. In that regard, I just know I'm just reading through and I see the be truthy uh, mm-hmm. expectation. I don't know. Is that, is that true or is that sort of true? Or <laughs> I just thought it was pretty funny. I usually use be true. <laughs> I haven't used that one. But one thing you can see in there is that they do have things like to eventually be truthy. So you can have different matchers. If you have an API request, they have a synchronous, you know, it'll, it'll keep checking until it gets the result. So that's really nice. Um, and I know XC test has added the synchronous testing, but if you tried it, it's kind of clunky. It's not as clean as like to eventually be true. It's you have to say like start and then this is what I expect and then like end. So one thing that I've I'm curious about is that there are certain parts. I work mostly on the web and then I do some mobile stuff. And I'm just like I said, getting into this arena where I want to be testing my iOS apps. Are there parts of your iOS app that you don't test either because they don't fit this paradigm well or because they're too brittle to write the tests against? Yeah, I mean, if it's too brittle, you probably should rewrite it, (laughs) rewrite the code. (laughs) So uh, I have more, I work more on like a newer project where we started with testing. So it hasn't been an issue. Probably just if you have other dependencies. So sometimes if you have different, you know, like a CocoaPod and they don't support dependency injection, then it makes it really difficult to test. So do you just test the boundaries of those then and then count yeah. on them to have written good code? <laughs> so, I mean, if you do integration tests, that should kind of take care of a lot of that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like KIF or Cucumber uh, tests more the higher level functionality and it should test all those cases, hopefully. Yeah, the question I was trying to ask, I guess, is that um, so in the case of Rails, the views, which would be the user interface or the UI view stuff, it can vary sometimes depending on what you're doing with it as to what shows up and how you can test that. Uh, do you, so, do you yeah, put mocks behind it and test it or do you just skip it? Yeah, so I actually like to use view models. So with view models, you can put any logic that goes into the view in a kind of like a separate model-like class. And that's very easy to test because you're like, oh, if the username is blank, then, or, you know, it should be red or like you have validation code. But yeah, actual visual testing, like if something is off, you know, in design or something is off by five pixels, 
I mean, that's more human testable. So we have uh, QA people who can like take a look and find all the cases. Yeah. So like one thing is your code is only as actually, I don't think it's possible to test like everything because we're human. So we're not going to think of every edge case. <laughs> so <laughs> one of the rules I had uh, in my old job when I did Ruby on Rails is if you find a bug, add a test for it. So, you know, there's going to be bugs, even if you have perfect tests or you think you do, there's always going to be some random scenario that you didn't think about. So in that case, when you encounter the bug, you know, just add a test and to prevent it from happening again. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. And if you use Kif or Cucumber, that uh, does a lot more of the work on the view layer because it, it will actually go in and like put input into a text field and make sure there is a text field and click on the button and make sure it goes to the next screen. So that type of testing helps with the view stuff as well. So along the lines of unit testing in Swift, one of the first questions I had was testing this class that we created. How do we re represent the class in our test? Do we use just the standard class? Do we make it an optional or do we make it an implicitly unwrapped optional with the exclamation point? One of the blog posts I came in was one of your talks, one of your blog posts about that. Can you tell us your approach for that? Yeah, so a lot of, because um, there's no like init method in tests. Um, if you have some kind of setup method, um, you would declare your global stuff that you're testing in as explicitly unwrapped optionals. If the things you want to test are optionals. And then in the setup method or before each method, you would reassign it every time. Okay, so you're declaring a var. I guess it would still be a var in QuickSpec. Yeah, it would be a var. Yeah, you have to, it has to be a var because you're reassigning. Okay, each time through. So the class is created once, but each time you go through it, you're calling a setup, which sets the value. Yeah. So, okay, so you get, you it, got the... It reassigns okay. it. So you've got the exclamation point with that, which I usually avoid, like the plague. Yeah, I do it. not. Yeah, I do not put it in, you know, in real code. <laughs> okay. So exclamation good test code, bad real code. Okay, yes. we're on the same page there. That's good. But since setup happens before, and the nice else, thing about Quick is they will actually compare optionals for you. Uh, so if you do XC tests, it's kind of annoying because. If like you have a string that's an optional result and it equals to a non-optional string, you have to kind of double check. You have to do extra work or you have to force unwrap. Mm -hmm. uh, with Quick, they do the work for you so you can compare an optional string to a non-optional one. Oh, and that's they, very cool. Yeah, so that's been really nice. What happens nice. if you force unwrap something and it... Yeah, and then your test crash. Yeah, that's... Which is like huge. annoying. <laughs> it's one thing to fail a test. You shouldn't take down the whole test suite. Yeah, exactly. So that's, that's a huge win right there. What does that assert in Quick? Um, you would just say, like, expect my string dot two equal five, right? So it's just a normal expect statement. It just okay. does it automatically for you. So behind the scenes, it's checking yeah. if it's optional or if there's a value and yeah, doing the right exactly. thing. Oh, very cool. Do you find that a lot of people are trying to test their Swift code? Or is there not such a strong culture of testing in, in the Swift ecosystem yet? I think it's more of an iOS thing, not specifically Swift. So it just depends. I think the community is moving definitely a lot more towards testing 
but I'm sure there's a lot of people who don't test. So <laughs> it's hard, right? Because you have to kind of put the time up front. So it's just something, you know, you have to trust in because up front, it, it really slows down your process. Yep. Yeah, you'll be here of not doing it. But so. it's, yeah, it's very addicting once you do it because you have the security blanket and like you can, I personally, my happy day at work is deleting a thousand lines of code. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, when you don't have any tests, it's kind of like, well, I hope nothing uses this old thing anymore. Like <laughs> the code seems to compile. But when you have the test, you just have a lot more confidence in deleting the old code. Yeah, if you liked it, you should have put a test on it. That's what I <laughs> 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 I let them delete the code. <laughs> and I actually had to be a test, catch a, a, a rebase gone awry. I was trying to merge back into something, and I ran the test, and they broke. And they found it out very quickly versus doing massive Git refactoring and something like that. So it can help you save a lot of time trying to figure out what went wrong, especially if you're doing a crazy rebase. It also acts as a documentation for your code, especially if you're writing quick style tests where you're saying, you know, this is the context, this is what I'm expecting for each case. Um, it becomes a lot readable and someone looking at your code, if they're not sure, they can, you know, go to the test and be like, okay, here's what's expected of this method. And you get all of, like you said, the setup and everything else. So it's like if I want to just open up some kind of sandbox or playground or, you know, something else and just fiddle with stuff, then I have all of the setup, you know, I know exactly how to put things together so that it will behave the way that I expect it to. Exactly. So what are some other differences when we're testing between Swift and Objective-C? I think the main one is just an annoying one where, you know, you have to put your, each file into the test target for it to access it. Or the other workaround is you have to like import your whole framework. So just not automatic. It's a little bit clunky to set up. And then I think like just dealing with optionals is painful sometimes. So, <laughs> but that's just more swift versus, you know, not even testing specific. Yeah. I think you highlighted the first major battle in the swift TDD wars, whether to import every file or mm -hmm. make everything public. You yes. Know, what, what is the better <laughs> approach? Yeah. I mean, I can tell you what I do. I don't know which one is better, but I like to import each file because I'm like very obsessive with keeping things private. So, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's not fun. Yeah, definitely. I think if, unfortunately, yeah, as you alluded to that your test bundle can't see your internal methods, which is a pain because we'd like to keep them internal and not have to set everything. I, I tried importing all my files to the test project and I found if they had any dependencies on CocoaPods, I had to import everything. Mm -hmm. So I walked away from that approach, and I just make things public and just be careful of what I need to test and what interfaces I'm exposing, which for the project I'm working on works pretty well. If I was doing an API where I had to watch the interface very closely, I might think differently. But I've had less success importing it into the bundle. So a lot of people seem to like it. Yeah, and hopefully future versions of Swift will make it a lot easier to do that. Just let us see the internal stuff. <laughs> no, that would make things a lot easier. How much of this do you think is going to change over the next little while? Because, I mean, it's still, you know, they're still playing with some of the tooling and stuff around Swift. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty, it's become more stable, I think, as Apple's been f focusing on WatchKit. But I think we'll probably see some kind of like Swift 2.0 at WWDC. So 
at that point, you'd probably have breaking changes, <laughs> which wouldn't be as fun. But yeah, that's hard to predict. Yeah, that's true. Definitely hard to know exactly what they'll do. Mm-hmm. It seems like there's, I mean, there's a good bit of stability. Though. I mean, uh, I'm hearing lots of people doing development on Swift, so they don't seem to be, seems to be a lot of confidence that at least at this stage, it's good enough to move forward with projects. Yeah, definitely. And again, like it hasn't been, they do like releases every two weeks for the new beta and it hasn't had anything breaking. I think they're probably focused more on optimizing it, making it faster. So things like that. Less beach balls. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> crash. I typed in something bad. wrong. Crash. Yeah. Xcode crashes. <laughs> so how many ways time can you, how many ways can you crash the compiler? Infinite. They fixed the, you know, terminating source kit stuff a little bit. It's much yeah. better now. <laughs> okay, that's good. That was very painful for a while. Okay, yeah, I'm on, I'm on beta 2, so I need to upgrade 5 for a couple days. I heard 4 was bad. People had problems with 4. Hmm. Do you have an opinion? Well, at work, I use a stable version. Like, I don't use the betas, but okay. uh, at home, I've been using betas, and they seem fine, but I've been focused more on watch kit stuff, not as much Swift-specific. Okay. So I'm I'm a little curious, and this is uh, I'm going to go wildly off topic here. But uh, what's your process for experimenting with Swift and then writing a blog post about it? I mean, usually just something I do um, on a daily basis. So it's more like I'm just coding like a normal person. <laughs> I go to work, code, or work on my own project, and I'm coding something, and then I get stuck, and then try to figure it out. Or sometimes I read blog posts that give me ideas of how to do better code. So one example is I've been reading a lot about functional programming because that's what, you know, and then that has helped me improve my Swift code and make it more Swifty. So it's kind of a mix of learning and doing. I was hoping that you were going to walk into work steeple your fingers together and then say something to the effect of, I am going to hurt Swift today. (laughs) (laughs) but mostly it's just around the okay this didn't do what i expected so what does it mean yeah or like sometimes i just think i read a blog post and i'm like oh there's a better way to do this Uh, so one example is um i don't know if you've seen the blog post of like error handling in swift i think it's like very elegant and it takes from the functional programming world where you can have an enum where you have like an error, like a result enum, and you have a success and error case. And then you have switch statements based on whether you're, you have a success or error result. But that type of stuff, like I would read and then go to work and like want to implement because it's so beautiful. And it's more swifty, but it's not something that I would have come up with from what I'm used to doing in Objective-C. Gotcha. So you're experimenting at work, you're experimenting at home on your own time, just whatever yeah. kind of strikes your fancy. Yeah, read a bunch of stuff, <laughs> see what people who are smarter than me, you know, what they do, and then feel the comfort zone. Because, um, for example, like a lot of, there's some people out there who are like super crazy with like operators in Swift, and they have like 10 different operators. And like, you know, so to me, that's like, that's kind of cool to look at, but that's not as readable, or like people on my team will not know what this means. So I'm not going to be implementing that, but it's interesting to read about. I you think know, people, just, yeah. people that don't know C++ are doomed to repeat it. <laughs> <laughs> don't do it, people. <laughs> but it, it is operator overloading. It's not quite what it is in Swift, but it's a little safer than it was C++. So I, I could see some use for it, but 
take it easy. Don't do too much. Oh, I had one question about something you mentioned earlier in the show about unwrapping multiple optionals. Mm-hmm. So the brute force way is just doing if let, and then you, inside that you know they're if let, and that's yes. annoying for everyone involved. How do you do it? Um, so you can just do a case statement, so pattern matching, and then you just do case, you know, or like switch, and maybe you have two things. So you'll say like first optional, comma, second optional, and then you're doing switch statements, and each case is going to be like if both of them are there, if one of them is there, if the other one is there, if none of them are there. So it really forces you to think of every single scenario, not just like, because if you do the nested ifs, you're only testing the success scenario, right? If both things are there. But by doing the switch statement, you have to think of every single combination of like both there, first one there, second one there, none there. Okay. So pattern matching, that's a paradigm from functional programming. Mm-hmm. Is that the same that you do in like a Lisp? Is that similar to it? I, I hear the term, but I don't, I don't really fully understand it. But just doing a case, a switch and a case statement where things that you expect to happen, happen? Yeah, it's just basically a case statement that says these, like, you know, I expect one, two, three, like it falls through. It's, I don't think, I think maybe the word is too complicated, <laughs> but it's just a pretty simple switch statement with like fall through cases. Yeah, I tried, do, I tried doing that and I ended up crashing the compiler. Oh, awesome. And I, and I backed away. <laughs> I backed away and I was like, fix it, then I'll try again. But maybe I just got some syntax wrong and I can fix it. So that's a, it's definitely a better way because I've been nesting my if lets and it, it's annoying. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, if you want to do pattern matching where it's like the way things are done, then Erlang and Elixir really do that as far as other languages go. And yeah, it is a very functional concept. Well, I'm bookmarking your blog. Nice. I'm actually reading both now. <laughs> Was that the multiple optionals one? No, actually, I'm I'm farther behind, so I'm actually reading the unit testing and Swift, the quick look at okay. quick. <laughs> well, anything else we should go over? Anything exciting going on in your career or life that you want to go through or should we go to pics i'm excited about watch kit <laughs> watch kit. So the watch yeah watch should be coming out in april so they actually announced it are you getting a watch hopefully i don't know the price points are a little i think there's one that's like 300 dollars, so that one seems good yeah so probably <laughs> it's hard to develop for it now on the simulator because you know like in real life it's going to be different so i think we'll definitely need it for that actual testing i agree i think you need to develop it for it it's on my list i can't convince my wife though that i need one but if you're an ios developer you need one (laughs) (laughs) it's her job (laughs) (laughs) i'll just ditch you on tape saying that and then she'll look at me and go well who the heck is she (laughs) (laughs) yeah so you're doing anything interesting right now with it or yeah i haven't had as much time as i'd like but Mostly just playing with it, um, understanding. The hard part I'm trying to learn right now is, um, and you'll see a lot of blog posts coming up, probably not this week, but maybe like in two weeks, I'll do a lot of them. And it's really understanding how to share data between the watch and the iOS app, or not share, but like share the code and the data. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm learning better, you know, because you have to kind of make your code slightly different. Makes yeah. sense. I'm really excited to play with it, but I always yeah, I mean, have something going on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
it's still very new and very limited. So I think the hard and interesting part is architecting your full project in a way that makes it easy to work with the watch and your app. Like one example is they want you to use uh, frameworks for your model code. So now you can kind of use the same code in your watch app and your iOS app and maybe your Mac app, who knows? So that's kind of like a good coding practice that you know I haven't really done, but just something to get used to. All right, well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Okay. Jane, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure, I got some picks. So I got some blog posts. So we talked about a couple ways to make our code accessible for unit tests. We can make everything public, which is more my approach. A lot of people are anything to test bundles. Sawmore came up with a third approach, which requires deriving from an NS object and some runtime stuff. But there is a third, third way of doing it. So it, I thought it was a pretty cool article. It's a unit testing Swift without extra access levels. So if you're developing APIs and you want to keep them locked down and private and still test them, it's an interesting approach. So initially I was kind of turned off by using Objective-C stuff in Swift, but I'm becoming more open to it because it's happening all the time anyway. If you're doing any framework stuff, you're coming from NS object, but that's one thing. I also noticed, um, we talked about dependency injection earlier in the show, and I noticed in my, my blog, a couple links from Objective-C, Object-CIO, uh, John Reed did a great post on dependency injection, so if we throw that word out and you're not sure what it is, there's a good explanation of it, so I'll do a link to that. And a shameless pick, I I did a blog post earlier this week about testing singletons in Swift using some constructor injection. So those are my picks. Three blog posts if you want to learn more about testing. All right, Alondo, what are your picks? I have two picks this week. The first one is a blog post as well. Um, we've been uh, we're updating our API, uh, and we were looking at parsing collection JSON. And so one of the techniques we're investigating this week is using the Cocos uh, KVC to do the parsing and looking at some ways that we can handle that to make it a little bit easier for us streamline the code, reduce and delete lines of code sans testing, but we will try to get there as well. So uh, it's, it's a pretty interesting technique, and I think it's something that we will use uh, regardless of the specifics of our particular implementation. Um, the second one is not technical. It is a budgeting. I, I started uh, trying to work through the Dave Ramsey's uh, seven steps. Uh, I know you've, you've turned me on to a couple of things, Charles. And so I started using a software program called You Need a Budget. And I find it really, really helpful. I was new to the whole idea of zero-based budgeting, so it's helped a ton, so much, in fact, that I'm actually moving forward on steps, and I'm super excited. So that's my second pick, and that's all I have this week. Awesome. I have been pretty much in the throes of putting up a conference for JavaScript developers, and that is this week and next week, so I've been pretty tired. I don't have any picks, per se, though I do have one thing that I am pulling together. I'm going to get the landing page up this afternoon. And that is for devboxclub.com. And what it is is it's a subscription service. And I'll just pack a bunch of stuff into a box and ship it out every month. I've had a lot of people basically say books, T-shirts, desk tchotchkes, you know, different things related to different software products. Um, I've been talking to a lot of folks. And as you can imagine with the five shows that I do and all the people I've talked to, that I have a lot of connections that I can use to uh, pull this stuff together. So if you're interested in getting a box sent out to you every month, I'm still working out the pricing and stuff. Um, you can go to devboxclub.com and just sign up for the, the mailing list, and then I will let you know when you can sign up and how much it'll cost per month to get a box. The other thing that I want to say about that is that I've decided that the first run is only going to be 50 boxes, 
And the reason is, is that way I can figure out what the logistics are in sending out all the boxes. And then I'll open it up to more people after that, because then I'll know how much work it's going to be to put them together and put them out. So if you want to get that kind of early access and know when and where to go sign up, because I figure 50 boxes will go pretty fast, um, then you'll need to be on that mailing list. So once again, that's devboxclub.com. And yeah, that's all I've got this week. Uh, Natasha, what are your picks? Since since we talked about testing, one of the testing frameworks uh, written by the guys who did Quick is Fox, and Fox is a property based testing, um, and it's based on kind of Quick Check and I think Haskell and other functional languages, and it uh, does a lot of like kind of auto generated input, so it's very thorough. Um, so it's kind of fun to check out. Um, another one is also from uh, Objective C IO is uh, they have a functional Swift book. So that book is really helpful for kind of understanding, you know, the functional aspects of Swift and like deciding where you want to fall on that. And then David Smith, he's been writing a series called As I Learn WatchKit. And that's been really great to just like, he has videos and blog posts of just all the WatchKit stuff. So highly recommend it. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming and thanks for sharing your expertise. I think this is an area that more and more people are going to be needing to learn. So if people want to follow up with you, what are the best ways for people to know what you're up to? So probably Twitter. It's Natasha the Robot. I have RSS feed on my blog. I have a newsletter. So <laughs> lots of ways. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks for coming. We'll wrap up the show. We'll catch you all next week. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the iFreaks and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at iFreakShow.com slash forum. 